there was a policeman sitting in the back with us, shaking like a leaf, giving us cigarettes and dropping the cigarettes and saying, oh my God, this is not my scene at all. Why did they have to pull me off desk duty for something as big as this? We said, as big as what? He said, haven't you seen the television? Haven't you heard the radio? Oh my word. He said, I believe you're going to Pensonville. You'll be termed as civil prisoners. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 31. Welcome to Labour Days. I'm Daniel, joined as usual by um, Ed and Ellie. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that will be a almost ever-present factor in the day-to-day activist life of uh, every uh, rank-and-file trade union activist, which is the question of legal restrictions on our right to strike. Um, it's a major factor in the UK, which has perhaps the most restrictive uh anti-union and anti-strike laws of any democratic country. Um, We're going to be talking about that in historical terms and in contemporary terms. And as we kind of go through the chronology, we're going to be looking at how the Labour movement has resisted some of those restrictions and what that might imply for how we can resist them today. Before we get into that, though, uh, I'm going to hand over to Ellie, who's going to talk a little bit about um, an election campaign, an ongoing election campaign that she's involved in in her union, the PCS. Um, One of the candidates in that election is somebody we've talked about on the podcast before in our episode about rank and file versus bureaucracy. Um, that's John Maloney. And we talked about him in the context of his pledge not to take the full salary that uh, he's entitled to as the Assistant General Secretary of the PCS um, and to stay on the wage that uh, he earned as a rank and file worker. He's standing for um, re-election. So Ellie, do you want to tell us a little bit about how that campaign's going and um, how, how that's been a platform for and promoting the kind of uh, rank and file class struggle trade unionism that uh, Labour Days is all about. Yeah, so thanks, Daniel. Um, yeah, so actually, I think the campaign is going well, touch wood, like <laughs> a little bit of superstition from a materialist there. But um, <laughs> I think that I think the campaign's going uh, actually really well. So yeah, as you have said, um, John is a kind of uh, a rank and file uh, activist and his original campaign was very much an insurgent campaign that um, was looking to kind of uh, break the power of a trade union leadership that had been been in place for basically 23 years. Um, and so listeners may be aware that a couple of months ago, the general secretary of my trade union decided to stand down again, like I say, for the first time in 23 years. Um, this is a really important moment that creates like really quite an important uh, opening for us because the the union leadership is moribund and you can kind of tell that by the fact that they've just sold out one of the most vibrant inspirational campaigns that I think we've seen in the civil service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the best picket lines we've ever seen, the best strike action that we've certainly seen in uh, yeah in PCS history and they sold that out for the worst pay offer in the public sector and a bribe essentially from the government of £1,500 which amounted to about £500 by the time it had been taxed and prorated and all of that sort of stuff. John is a rank and file working class activist who believes in the uh, you know the power of, of, of the rank and file 
Um, you can see this in how he organises. He organises industrially, so he organises not just the kind of civil servants who are on better terms and conditions and find it easier to do trade union work, but he's taught me a huge amount about organising facilities managers, for instance. Um, and these that's are like out, that's who, like outsourced workers, right? Yeah, these are outsourced workers who work in like security and catering, and these are the people that are, for instance the most oppressed i would say in our building so they're often uh g4s or mighty or something like that and their contracts are absolutely atrocious there is no other member of the union leadership who seems to think it's important to organize those apart from john he's a spearhead in that um he's also um a man who has pledged to take a worker's wage so since he's been in his position um, since 2019, he has only ever taken the salary of an EO in the DWP. Um, it's hard to say this without just getting into weird acronyms that only civil servants understand, really. But like an EO that, that's, is... He, he's, he, he's, he's remained on the wage that he earns as a shop floor worker, basically. That's the, the kind of key yes, takeaway, yes, right? Yes, that's, that's the key to it. He's also running on a joint ticket with Marion Lloyd, who has also recently pledged she's, she is... If she was to win, um, she would be taking on the position new. And again, she's not the leadership favourite. Um, and she has also pledged to take a worker's wage. So these are really important points. And it's not just because we want our union reps to live in poverty. <laughs> it's because, you know, our their wages are tied to our wages and that makes them fight harder. Our union representatives shouldn't belong to some like upper stratosphere mm -hmm. of people where they're in the kind of like top one percent of earners in the country that's entirely ludicrous um and i think you know i think everybody here on the labor days team would agree with me when i say that that is not what creates uh great fighting leaders um so john has tied his wage to our wage and when we get a pay rise he gets a pay rise um which is great and i could wax lyrical about john for a million years but the point is He's a rank and file activist and he's running on a platform to democratise the union, um, to give power back to members. And also he's not going to sell out our strikes at the drop of a hat. Sounds like a pretty good recommendation for a candidate. Thanks, Ellie. We'll put some links to John and Marion's campaign materials in the um, episode description. And that question, the question of, you know, how do you run in a union election in a kind of um, transformative reform focused kind of insurgent rank and file way that's something we might come back to as we record um there's a major strike wave taking place in the usa centrally involving uh, the uaw the united auto workers and um their strike against the big three car manufacturers has has been impelled at least in part by a reform effort that took place in that union that led to the first direct election for for the president in in some time and, and, and that process of democratization has really helped um, pave the way for, for inspiring strike that's taking place now. You know, we're certainly not of the view and, and would not want any listeners to be encouraged in the view that the way you transform or reform your union is just by focusing on getting better people elected as officials. That's certainly not the case. Um, but at the same time, it's obviously better to have rank and file Democrats who want to encourage and empower um members at the base in those positions than to have people who have a more conservative or, or, or bureaucratic approach so um thanks for that ellie to move then into the kind of body of uh, our episode today um 
you said, we're going to be talking about uh, legal restrictions on the right to strike. And as usual on uh, for, for Labour Days, we're going to be taking a kind of historical perspective. And Ed's going to be kicking us off with a sort of survey going right back to the um, inception of uh, uh, some of those legal restrictions on um, on the right to strike and the right of unions to organise. And then we're going to be kind of moving through the piece uh, uh, chronologically and Ellie and myself will, will pick up the story as we go. So, Professor Mustill, step up to the lectern. Is uh, I don't know whether to be careful because I don't know whether Professor is like a a kind of re- uh, registered protected type, you know, like you know, like you can't like, what, go like, around like champagne. You're not allowed to call a wine champagne yeah, unless it's actually from the champagne region. That you, we we can't call you professor unless you have a I don't know a mortarboard. <laughs> You're just yeah, a sparkling mud. Like, like, like yeah, a registered yeah. nurse or something, or or a or a Melton Mowbray pork pie or or something like that, you know. But <laughs> it's I it's think a, it's okay as long as I'm not referring to myself. I think. Yeah, yeah, like you, guys, you we'll, guys can say what you want, but we'll we'll let we'll let trading standards settle that one. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> give us uh, give us that sweet sweet history. I'll try and do. I'm going to try and do um, about 170 years of uh, of trade union law in as as short a time as I can. So it's going to necessarily be a bit of a uh, a sort of outline sketch, and it is. Uh, as we've said, it is focused on this country, like the development of uh, anti-union laws in other countries is is something that I think we should probably, again, something we should probably talk about mm. uh, in future. But unfortunately, uh, I don't know anything about it. So we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to put a bit of work in for that. Um, so going, going way back, I mean, there, there have been kind of anti-union laws like you can go back as far as the Middle Ages and the Tudor period for kind of statutes that attempted to, uh, uh, among other things, sort of regulate wages and to stop uh, stop workers kind of mm. uh, combining. But the obviously Henry VIII executed some construction workers who went on strike during the construction of Deal Castle. As as I learnt to my fascination on a visit to Deal Castle, not so long yeah. There's there's a little uh, there's a little sign about it, isn't there? A little there is, yeah. I mean, sign. So there you go. A, 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 an, an ignoble history of uh, anti-strike repression going right back to the 1530s. And obviously, the only well, it, it's only with the kind of a development of the industrial working class in a big way. So from the kind of 18th century onwards, that. Um, the kind of le- that the, there's a necessarily then sort of from the state's point of view has to be a, a legal framework around industrial relations, but it happened in this country very in a very kind of bitty and sort of ad hoc way, you could argue. Um, and it's not really, it's certainly not as it has been in some like Western European countries, been a kind of straight line from like repression of unions through to kind of recognition and working with them it's been a lot more kind of back and forth yeah Yeah. so from the 1720s you get like a succession of laws that ban in the language of the time combination basically attempts to form trade attempts to do trade unionism to assert like collective action over over terms and and, and what what's what sort of groups of workers would have been because that's obviously slightly before the big explosion of industrialization so what kind of groups of workers would the state have had in mind in in, um, in that attempt to restrict combination 
usually kind of um, specific kind of trades like craftsmen, so like um, uh, tailors, like people that make boots and shoes and stuff like that, people that worked in shipyards, etc. So like the the nascent kind of industrial working class. Mm. At the, right at the end of the 18th century, turn of the 19th century, these laws kind of get codified into uh, the Combination Acts that were an attempt at a general ban at trade unionism where combination was um, basically defined as two or more workers coming together to tr- to have an effect on their wages or hours of work and turned that coming together into a criminal offence. The uh, Technically, um, bosses could also be found guilty under the Combination Act of kind of forming a cartel, but in terms of who it affected, it affected workers and it led to prison sentences. It led to prison sentences with two to three months hard labour as well. Can, and... can, just just before you just before you go any further, and at the risk of um, uh, sort of prolonging your hundred and seventy year survey, which I know you're, <laughs> you're, I know you're barely into the first the first decade of. We're one year um, in at the moment. Yeah. Well, you listen. Look, look. It'll take as long as it takes. All right. <laughs> we'll do it in real time. It'll take one hundred and seventy <laughs> years. Can you say a bit about the uh, the sort of politics of the time, because because obviously I imagine this is going to be a theme that we're going to come back to. That this is this is an area, um, and 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 you know, w- w- with apologies to the more sort of purist syndicalists amongst our listeners, this is an area where you really can't escape the the kind of synthesis between the industrial front and the political front, right? Um, so, what's going on politically? What are the governments that are implementing these laws and what does the franchise look like at this point well you're talking at the moment we're talking the time of the french revolution the napoleonic wars and you're talking a a kind of aristocratic british ruling class which is terrified of popular insurrection uh terrified at least for a short period of time of uh foreign invasion by uh the armies of napoleon and uh, sort of paranoid about enemies within and without, you know. It, it, and it is a very, um, it is very much an aristocratic uh, ruling class rather than kind of bourgeois capitalist at this point. Politically, one of the motivating forces behind the Combination Acts was William Wilberforce, who's better known to history as a as a great hero of the uh, abolitionist movement mm. campaign against slavery. Um, the yeah, so so in in the context of like post-revolutionary europe and it and it's a it's a it's a trend that goes right through actually and it's quite interesting to think about it from the point of view of where we are now that's so for example the toll puddle martyrs which um so they were transported uh basically exiled um for attempting to form a trade union in the 1830s so a little bit after this point but they were the law they were found guilty under wasn't specifically an anti-trade union law. It was a law from 1797 about the taking of an illegal oath. Right? Mm. So that was a more pol- that was that was a law um, kind of designed more against like covert sort of revolutionary political societies. And there's always been a kind of entanglement between sort of anti-trade union law pure and simple and more a more broader kind of like laws against sort of political liberty 
And you can see that now with like, you know, at the same time they're tightening up, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, you know, the same time they're tightening up the anti-union laws, they're also bringing in broader legislation against just being able to like have a protest or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. there's all, and there's all, so there's always been trade unionists that have fallen foul, not just of anti-union laws, but of, you know, other kind of politically motivated restrictions on your kind of like civil liberties, you know, and the Tolpol and Martyrs kind of fall into that, into that category. Um, the combination acts themselves were of mixed use, I think, to the ruling class. They were certainly used in, in some industrial disputes in the eight, early, early 1800s, uh, particularly in Lancashire in the cotton industry, but they were repealed 1824 Um partly on the basis that like they weren't they weren't necessarily seen to be like working very well um but the following year the crime of conspiracy was reinstated with a new law so this happens quite a lot in british kind of industrial relations law that they'll kind of they'll bring something in it'll work for a bit they then maybe they'll repeal a little bit of it, but then maybe they'll push back again on certain uh, on certain aspects. Um, but it removed the kind of later the eighteen twenty five combination act removed uh, the the crime of conspiracy for matters relating to wages and hours. So that creates another kind of divide, which again comes back in future anti union laws with a, a kind of divide between immediate sort of economic stuff which is like permissible to be campaigning about or mm -hmm. doing union work about and broader political stuff which is still regarded as being like oh it's a criminal offense to get together and talk about you know subverting the political order or whatever you know under these laws as well, um, intimidation and obstruction could lead to prosecution. So if you think about that in the context of the, develop uh, the development of industrial disputes, later in the 19th century, when picketing becomes kind of common to industrial disputes, you've always had the legal status of picketing has always been kind of contested, but you've always had a kind of provision in some law or other for... Um, picketing to be interpreted as a form of intimidation or, you know, it, if, in, in most times in British history in the last 200 years, if you want to, like, fit up some pickets under some law or other, you've been able to do it, right? But the, the, exact, the exact law that you're using to do that has kind of shifted over time. Most uh, jailed strikers in the kind of mid-19th century were actually in prison under... Uh, laws that, believe it or not, were called the master and servant laws, uh, <laughs> whereby it could be a criminal offence to break a contract. And in this country, going on strike is, uh, because we've never had uh, the right to strike enshrined in law itself, going on strike has always been seen as a breach of contract. And at this point, you could end up in jail for breach of contract. In the 1860s, uh, there was a a movement called the Sheffield Outrages, where some craft unions in Sheffield used some quite violent means against uh, workers that weren't joining the union. Uh, this led to like a, a royal commission of inquiry into the trade unions and a kind of 
new sort of legal settlement for trade unionism. So 1871, they bring a law in that kind of codifies trade unions a bit, gives them a bit of a sounder legal basis, uh, makes kind of peaceful picketing like explicitly okay to do. And it's also at this point where unions have to um, register themselves with the certification officer to be seen as like legit, you know, which is something that they still have to do now. So, so it's maybe worth just sort of dwelling on that moment a bit because it's quite illustrative in a number of ways, isn't it? That firstly, that's a kind of gain of struggle in some sense that, you know, without wanting to like telescope everything together too much, if that's the right word, but that's coming after the, the, the rise and then decline of chartism. So there's been you know, 30 years before that, there's been a mass upsurge in working class political action. Um, and um, you've mentioned some of the other uh, kind of uprisings. So coming out of that period, there's a liberalisation as a kind of gain of struggle. But at the same time, that's also an attempt to sort of institutionalise the um, endeavour of trade unionism by um, fitting it into a kind of legal framework. And I guess this is one of the ongoing and, you know, until we abolish the wage relation and institute a cooperative commonwealth, it's going to be a permanent um, factor of uh, sort of trade union life. If you're somebody who sees trade unionism as being connected to a wider struggle for social transformation, that's always a tension, right, between seeing a trade union as, in some sense, an instrument in that struggle, but it's also necessarily a kind of legal institution which is constrained by um, this legal framework. So would you see that moment, Ed, and maybe even that law as be being, being kind of year zero for um, the legal inst you know, the, the the kind of institutionalization of trade unionism in in this country yeah i think yeah i think 1871 and 1875 acts are basically the the beginnings of like the modern framework of industrial relations basically it's it basically says trade unions are legal but they need to behave themselves you know they can have funds um the 75 act i think is the one that basically says that if you're if, if you're engaged in like a legitimate strike, you're kind of legally protected, even though you're breaking contracts. So going back to the, the thing that I said a minute ago about, you know, people being thrown in jail for just for because they haven't turned up to work. This is the period where just just for saying they're on strike, they'd be arrested and thrown, yeah, in, and jail. thrown in jail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Literally arrested and thrown in jail. And then, um, you know, so that's the kind, and it, and it's 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 talked about in a lot of the literature as like a lot of this stuff is like negative. It, it's giving it's giving trade unions and trade unionists sort of like negative freedoms. It's giving them mm. kind of protection against oppression, uh, repression in specific circumstances. But at no point do any of these laws say you have a right to go on strike. We've that that's I can't stress enough how much that has never happened in this country. That we we've, mm. we've never had anything legal that says you've got a right to withdraw withdraw your labour, right? What we have which, is a complicated which, which... kind of scaffolding of legislation that may that means that you can do that if you've jumped through a load of hoops without getting 
sacked, basically. Sure, and, and I think worth stressing that a legally enshrined right to strike is not some libertarian communist fantasy. It's something that does exist in in other sort of bourgeois democracies. So I think, again, that's another, indi- that's another fact that indicates um, how particularly restrictive things are in this country that, you know, unlike very similar kind of types of bourgeois democratic society, um, there, 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 there is not and never has been a, a, a legal right to strike in Britain. Is that not just kind of a symptom of how our law works, though? Because that's how our law works. We often don't have laws that say you have a right to blah de blah. Like because we don't have a constitution, we're not a so it's mm. kind of just a symptom of how our law works. I, yeah. I, I'm not saying yeah. it's not restrictive, but I I think there's a particular a particular peculiarity about British law, right? No, that that's exactly right. And like you kind of half acidly write a law, or you write a law that kind of says if this is the situation, then this could be the punishment or whatever. But loads of it is then tested in case law, right? And that yeah. the, you're right, Ellie, that happens all the time across all types of law, In certainly in England, I imagine, in the other countries in Britain as well, because obviously you have you have common law as well, which is different in, in different parts of the country, isn't it? And what happened after these trade union acts in the 1870s is that a lot of employees... You've, you've put trade unionism on firmer legal footing. So what a lot of employers then do is push back by trying to test things in the courts and trying to say, well, okay, but I'm, uh, I've am i faced this strike and it's cost me loads of money, so I want to like take the union to court for uh, the money that I've lost. And that kind of happens more and more in the, throughout the 1890s and it culminates famously in the Taft Vale judgment in uh, at the turn of the 20th century where the Amalgamated Society of Railway Servants was found to be liable for the uh, profit that a railway company uh, in Wales lost as a result of a strike and that was that was basically a piece of case law there was nothing in like written law that said that explicitly said every time you go on strike you have to the union has to like pay for all the money that the employers have lost because if that had been the case there would have ne- there'd never be any point going on strike so what the Tafail judgment did as a piece of case law was it really put the shits up the unions to the point where they were like well actually god if this is, is if this is upheld then there is no point going on strike mm. and that and that led to well, you know, big, the big, tradi- drum, big drum roll here, big drum roll. <laughs> the traditional, you know, the traditional historical um, uh, historiography, and I think is largely right, is that that really spurred the foundation of the Labour Party and the and the a lot of the unions to kind of break with the Liberal Party and and form and sort of be won so, over to the argument for like a independent Labour representation, basically. Which, can't duck the question of politics. Well, well, of course, and we'll keep coming back to it throughout the 20th century as well. You know, like the, the and the again, as we know, the role of the Labour Party in this stuff is very contradictory, and I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. You know, in terms of 
various laws that they have or haven't repealed at various <laughs> times. But they, what they did manage to do in 1906 as a as a sort of minority uh, party supporting a Liberal government is they managed to get the uh, Trades Disputes Act passed, which did um, protect unions against that kind of... Uh, you know, in a, in a in a legitimate industrial dispute, you couldn't be hauled up in court by the employer and forced to pay their uh, their damages, right? But again, that's a negative. It's another negative right that's bestowed on the trade unions. It's a it's a it's a sort of shield in a piece of legislation. It's not it, it's nothing that says you have an absolute right to strike or even approaching that. Um in in that period as well, even even in its very early days, um the parliamentary labor party play, plays quite a pernicious role in in the mm. period of the great unrest which is uh, just before the first world war which we've mentioned in many different episodes um, one, one of your favorites yeah well you know it's all been it's all been downhill since then in my opinion <laughs> but e- e- even at that point some members of the parliamentary labor party actually proposed a law that i think would have um would have required i think it was 28 days notice from a ballot to a strike Mm-hmm. Which is worse than what we've got now because now it's fourteen days, yeah, and they were and they I, were doing it that on the basis of of trying to be advocates for like industrial peace and kind of class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think indicative of a tendency that was present in the Labour Party right from its inception and and basically became dominant pretty quickly of a of a kind of a sort of managerialist seeing seeing the the, the role of um, labor organization as to be a kind of mediating and kind of moderating factor on uh, on uh, unrestrained class struggle yeah and and c- in- certainly in the first world when the first world war happened and the state kind of took control of large parts of the sort of manufacturing economy that again sort of shifted the train terrain of industrial relations to to sort of sort of like um the beginnings of what in later years was referred to as kind of tripartite a tripartite approach where you have like the unions the employers and the government sort of yeah. like coming together to try and solve the problems of industry without having to resort to kind of industrial warfare or whatever you know mm. so so again it kind of the experience of the First World War like pushes British industrial relations in a certain direction, I think. After the First World War into the twenties, the the main again, the main law that was used in the twenties against uh strikes was actually the Emergency Powers Act, which was uh something that came in uh after the First World War to kind of extend some of the authoritarian powers that the government had taken upon itself during the war and so in the big coal miners strike in 1921 and then again in 1926 during the general strike um a lot of uh, a lot of what's going on is in terms of troops being sent to coal fields and moving uh, moving goods around and stuff like that that's happening under an act which isn't it isn't specifically a sort of piece of anti-union legislation but it's just it's just a general like bad law that gives the government loads of power to do what it wants we're, in, we're, in, we're into the 20s ed so we, we're we're rapidly approaching one of the 
most significant flashpoints in uh, class war history in this country, the 1926 general strike. So what impact does that have on the legislative regime around uh, around workers' rights and union action? So again, there's like um, an immediate response to the general strike in the form of an anti-union law that gets passed the following year, which is the 1927 Trades Disputes Act. And that basically is an attempt, or it's quite a weak attempt, but an attempt to make kind of uh, sympathy action and like political strike action uh, illegal, basically, because obviously mm-hmm. the whole the whole point of the general strike was that it was the uh, broader trade union movement coming out in support of a a coal miners strike that was already going on, and it had brought the country from the point of view of the ruling class had brought the country to the brink so dangerously that they basically. Uh, their response to it was to try and introduce a law that would make it impossible for that to happen again. Um, But again, the 1927 Act was never really, they never really had to use it very much. It was never, it was never really tested. Um, And it actually, one of the first um, acts of the 1945 Labour government was to repeal that act. But uh, as I think uh, we probably know and, and, but our listeners may or may not know, uh, the great social democratic Attlee government of 45 wasn't itself averse to using the law to break strikes. And again, no, indeed. they used yeah. emergency powers legislation, which again was a wartime thing, um, to uh, use the army to break dock strikes and other transport strikes uh, just after the war. So, you know, the... You can see in in the Attlee era the kind of two faces of the Labour Party. On the one hand, getting rid of this old law, but on the other hand, resorting to different laws to do similar stuff to what the state uh, did during the general strike, you know. The kind of received wisdom, I suppose, of like the post-war years, post-Second World War, is that it was a time of like relative political consensus and like the building of the welfare state and a time Mm. where kind of rose-tinted spectacles of that period do um they do kind of gloss over episodes like when the Attlee government used the army to break a strike or something yeah. like that you know that's it they um, never show the Attlee government bayonetting those striking midwives or call the midwife do they <laughs> i mean that's actually an episode i might tune into imagine that is <laughs> there ever been have you watched call the midwife ever I've wa- I've never watched it, but I've seen uh, the last thirty seconds of a uh, lot of episodes while I'm waiting for like something else to come on on the telly. You know, I tend to think that everything, like all of those like twee historical BBC things, are just gotta be awful, aren't they? So I never like I can't imagine, for instance, like Downton Abbey is anything worth watching and i don't understand why people rave about it and i sort of feel like call the midwife's got to be the same flex on well but level. i think it does it does ref, it does kind of express the uh and you know so saying this from a position of ignorance as someone who's never really watched it but it, i imagine <laughs> if i was gonna just yeah, you know carry, carry on <laughs> if i was gonna just make make something up about it, I, it it probably does reflect that kind of that kind of rose-tinted view of that post-war yeah. era of spirit, like spirit of 45 yeah like social peace and like people being kind of people having us like a safety net and being and and part of that 
in the post-war period was you know the acceptance of trade unionism as a kind of um part of that social fabric and a kind mm. you know responsible trade unionism at least of of being like a, a crucial part of like the post-war settlement you know so there there's a period then where there's actually not a lot of legislative movement in terms of uh, restrictions on on trade union activity until that consensus starts to break down in the 60s and you get um the with the incoming of uh, Ted Heath's government in 1970 uh, an attempt to refashion uh, the industrial relations landscape for the first time really in quite a few decades which led to the 1971 industrial relations act which was a huge deal um it was an attempt to uh, attack the kind of closed shop that existed in a lot of industries where basically you had to be a union member if you wanted to work in a p particular industry in practice uh, and it was an attempt to set up a, a national industrial relations court that would have had broad powers to um kind of intervene in uh you know in an ostensibly kind of you know even-handed way intervene in industrial disputes uh and recommend to like a government minister the secretary of state for employment that like big sort of like cooling off periods could be imposed by the central government um it, during strike action and stuff like that uh, and the 71 act provoked a mass campaign uh, of resistance basically in the trade union movement at the grassroots but also to be fair to them um the tuc did tell its affiliated unions to withdraw from the industrial relations court and actually ended up expelling from the tuc some unions that refused to do that so there was a there was a huge grassroots campaign against the act, but it did it did filter up. Well, something can't filter upwards, can it? But it, <laughs> it went. In the absence of a better word, it went upwards to the top of the to the top of the trade union movement, and it culminated in the famous case of um, percolate. Can it percolate upwards? Per, it percolate at the opposite yeah, no, of no, filtering. No. We'll settle, on per we'll settle on purple. <laughs> that's, that's, but, what, that's what coffee does, isn't it? Purple that's age. exactly it. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm literally just thinking about coffee now. <laughs> but right in, if you, if you, <laughs> if, if nothing else about this episode gets you thinking, right in about whether percolate what, is what the correct word. What go, what's, what, how, how do you filter something upwards? We're, di we're, we're dying to know. <laughs> but so that the campaign against the industrial relations that sort of culminates in uh, the famous case of um, the Pentonville Five, who were dockers who went to prison for basically defying an order that was issued by this industrial relations court, and there was basically a massive unofficial dock strike, and the very real possibility that that was going to tip into. Uh, the first general strike in Britain since 1926. And those guys were uh, very, very quickly released from prison. And the release of those guys basically killed that act stone dead. And mm. when Labour came back into power in 74, again, uh, one of the first things they did was repeal that industrial mm. relations. So again, you get the kind of role of the Labour Party. What they quite often do, and we might, we might see them do this again, shortly is they come in 
and they look at the most recent piece of anti-union legislation mm. and they say, let's get rid of that, but basically keep all the other stuff like it was before, you know. That kind of brings us up to the kind of crisis of the 70s and what we what we know or uh, what we think of as the kind of beginnings of like the sort of Thatcherite neoliberal experiment, which really did kind of smash up the the this like... Uh, delicately created uh, landscape of industrial relations that had developed over the course of uh, a century and a half. So, something I think is important to remember about the 71 Act and the movement against it, which you've just very succinctly described, Ed, that, that's often held up in discussion about how the Labour movement can resist anti-union laws as the kind of that's that that's the sort of apogee and it's it's cited as evidence for the argument that the way you um uh get anti-union laws repealed is basically through uh, just sort of mass defiance which on a very fundamental level is true and certainly is the case that um mass defiance is certainly you know an important weapon but people tend to forget about the 71 act and the movement the, the resistance to it is that the mass defiance came off the back of and emerged out of as you said a big grassroots campaign you know that was organizing meetings and rallies and you know there was a whole you know a, a whole kind of campaigning infrastructure that sort of prepared the ground and enabled that mass defiance to take place you know, obviously there was a higher pitch of struggle, a much higher level of rank and file shop for organisation. Anyway, so very different set of conditions. Yeah, a, mo- but, a movement with a with a strong yeah with a strong reps. You know, yeah, yeah. A strong contingent of politicised reps at the at the bottom. You know. a- a- absolutely. Um, but you know, I, I've certainly encountered in debate and discussion in the movement now. Some people can sometimes be a bit dismissive of the idea that you know that kind of basic nuts and bolts campaigning is important and they just say oh why bother with that what we need is just unofficial strikes defy the law um and that's what will get it repealed like in the 70s and whilst i certainly would not want to like pour cold water on anyone's enthusiasm for organizing mass defiance as i'm going to talk about a little bit later I do think it's important that if we get, if you know, if we're going to learn the lessons of the resistance to the seventy-one Act, it's about mass defiance in the context of a, you know, kind of kind of serious grassroots campaign. So you need both. But yeah, I, like I totally agree with everything you're saying, and sometimes I find it even a bit more insidious than that. I feel like we're maybe getting to the end of the discussion before we've done the entire discussion. But one of the things that really, like, one of the things that often really bothers me is when you're at like, because uh, obviously at the moment the government are trying to bring in even more sort of anti-vicious, uh, anti-vicious, vicious anti-union laws. And you'll get these rallies of like the great and the good of the labor movement standing up and literally saying what you're saying. Well, what we need is like mass defiance. What we need is mass defiance. But then at the same time, they can't even really get a mass like protest. They mm. can't even, really, yeah. you know, they can't, they can't even really generate that. And it's like, you'll pay lip service to this thing, but you, 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 at the same time, you will actively... It's not just that you're trying to put the cart before the horse, 
because we don't have the kind of foundations for mass defiance mm -hmm. that you will actively dampen down um sort of campaigns that could lead to mass defiance and i find that particularly sort of um irksome it sounds great as a soundbite yeah say it on a stage but then ultimately you're not even really calling protests you're not even really calling rallies um and yeah you're you you're also in many respects what's the what's how am i how am i approaching this you're often in many respects glorifying anti-strike laws and making them worse than they need to be when you're in the leadership of a trade union um a lot of people use that as a weapon to beat down their own rank and file mm -hmm. rather, than, rather than actually trying to defy it so i, I find it's, it's even a bit more insidious than what you're saying it's true ellie that um some of the as you're saying some of the same senior trade union officials who will stand on the platforms of those meetings and talk about how restrictive and undemocratic the anti-strike laws are and even flirt with the language of defiance. Some of those same people are the officials who have kind of, yeah, exactly as you're saying, you know, so for example, they've like weaponized ballot thresholds in, well, you know this very well. I mean, it's happened very recently in your own union, right? That like Mark Sawatka, who, you know, look, let's let's not beat around the bush. Like, he's the person I have in mind here, right? That, like, on the one hand, he will, uh, you know, rightly rail against how undemocratic anti-union laws are, and, and and I think has at times kind of flirted with that that rhetoric of defiance. But um, in a recent interview in Tribune magazine, was also he was kind of he was sort of attacking. Uh, critics of his within the union and one of the bases on which he attacked them was the the, the claim the, the the false claim for what it's worth but the claim that um oh you know these are people in departments that couldn't even hit the 50 percent turnout threshold so what right do they have to be criticizing me which is um absolutely like internalizing and weaponizing one of the very undemocratic restrictions he's railing against and saying we should defy so uh, you're you're absolutely right that that that, that like um, radical posturing can often be a cover for a very conservative approach that, to a significant degree, has has um, in, internalized and weaponized the anti-strike laws as a tool of the bureaucracy. There's another there's another element that you get from officialdom as well uh, in in where they kind of say, um, oh, these laws are going to be unworkable. You know, mm. and and it's, I don't I don't think any of them would say that doesn't mean that they're or that means that they're not in favour of like repealing them. But I think it's a bit dangerous because as long as a law remains on the statutes, they'll find a way of it using can be it. Used. At some point, yeah, you know? and you know, yeah, 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 the Industrial Relations Act was killed dead by the Pentonville Five campaign, but it still needed a Labour government to come in and actually get it off the books you know and there's plenty of um there's plenty of examples of which the toll puddle martyrs were one of people being picked up under laws that were kind of decades old or mm. and in some cases quite archaic and um you, you know and jailed under under those sort of ar archaic laws so to ha the attitude you sort of sometimes get as well of, of like oh it's it's okay because like they haven't really thought these laws through and they're just not going to work properly, I think can be quite dangerous sometimes as well. 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, you hear this said a lot, and it and it's true, and I think Daniel said it at the top of the show, um, that here in the UK, we have what basically the most restrictive anti-union laws in probably the democratic world. It's it's certainly true in, in uh, kind of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but most of the kind of very vicious and difficult anti-union laws that we deal with today do have their roots in the Thatcher government. So in her time in office, Thatcher managed to bring in no less than six acts relating to employment and trade unions, um, as well as us, uh, as using broader acts, such as the 1986 Public Order Act, to criminalise activity relating to things like uh, picketing. Um, so it was a very sustained assault from kind of the beginning of the Thatcher government all the way through, um, and John Major kind of... Um, squared the circle at the end and kind of wrapped it all up in a nice bow and this step-by-step approach was not kind of by accident um it was a very intentional strategy by the government to introduce kind of widespread reform that probably would be quite difficult for one uh, one labor government to come in and undo for instance um, not that she really had to worry about it because actually from Thatcher onwards there hasn't been any great um, in fact I don't think there's been any attempt by a Labour government to undo the sort of anti-union laws that were brought in under Thatcher so um, yeah they, it wasn't a big worry for her but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and also you know I think it's worth saying that when Thatcher came into government she knew that she had to have a war with trade unions like she wanted to have a war with the mm-hmm. trade unions she was getting ready for uh, taking on the NMUM, right? So that that was kind of her big thing. So within her first term, uh, Thatcher had successfully brought in the Employment Act of 1980. And what this did is it basically restricted um, the definition of what like lawful picketing could be. So picketing became strictly about uh, uh, people who were in dispute with their own employer. So, and you could only pick at your own premise um, because you're in dispute with your own employer. So this, for instance, meant that um, you couldn't get things like pickets going on outside distribution centers to stop deliveries of goods that were related to disputes. Um, And it also really, really reinforced this idea of you can't take on the sympathetic strike anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So this has always been obviously a problem as Ed has outlined in, in his talk, there's always been laws that have been trying to get around the sympathetic strike. But I think Thatcher was kind of one who really put the, the nail in the nail in the coffin there. So, and this um, act also introduced ballots on the existence of the closed shop. So again, these are not things that had not been happening in history but um, Thatcher kind of supercharged it. And what ended up happening in this act is um, essentially you had to have at least 80% of workers in a particular industry vote that the closed shop needed to exist. Otherwise, it could not exist in a a workplace. Um, So that's kind of the Employment Act of 1980. And that's like set in the scene of what was going to happen further and further down the line. Um, So you also then had the Employment Act of 1982. And again, this is really was used to like further solidify the end of the closed shop. But it also brought in other 
other key bits of legislation. So, for instance, it ended the immunity from um, civil action for trade unions and it made trade unions open to damages of anywhere between £10,000 and £250,000 if they were found responsible for um, doing... Un Sorry, can you hear that horrible siren that won't stop? Yeah, it's uh, it's the state coming to stop us from striking. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 Norman Tebbit's boot boys coming to take <laughs> you away for doing a, for doing a flying picket. Also, for disputes to be considered legal, again, they had to be between employers and their workers, and could only concern things like working conditions, wages, things like that. And this is a further move towards solidifying the end of sympathetic strikes um, and yeah. making sure that you can only go out over bread and butter issues. And again, this goes back to the kind of key thing that we've been talking about all the way through the show as well around um, at what point politics comes into it and, mm -hmm. and where trade unions stand in, in that kind of, of area of, of the political strike rather than just the bread and butter strike. I mean, I think the those two restrictions particularly um you know i mean one one shouldn't uh one shouldn't make a kind of hierarchy of uh of legal restrictions but i think those two restrictions particularly the the, the ban on the sympathetic strike um or or uh the, uh, the solidarity strike if people aren't familiar with uh, the term sympathetic strike which you should be for listening to our episode about connolly um, the ban on the sympathetic strike and the ban on striking over kind of political issues, quote unquote, are two of the most um, serious and kind of pointed restrictions in this whole legislative regime. And they're the two, they're two of the restrictions that really highlight the nature of this package of laws as um a class war offensive from a government of the rich by the rich for the rich um that it's about pushing you know i'm sure if thatcher uh had felt confident enough to go further she would have done you know given her friendship with people like pinochet um but this was about pushing trade unionism into a narrowly defined, you know, here are the things that it's you're allowed to take any action on. Here's the way you're allowed to take action on it. It's restricting the endeavour of trade unionism into a set of parameters defined by the ruling class and its state. Um, so, you know, this is very uh, consciously and explicitly the use of legislative instruments as weapons of class war. I mean, on your point as well, Daniel, about there being good laws and bad laws and and kind of fighting on the terrain of law, there were also sections of the Trade Union and Labour Relations Act of 74, which previously courts had always interpreted as basically giving Im immunity to uh, people who wanted to do sit-ins or occupy their workplaces or things like that. And this act um, that Factor brought in repealed all of those bits of law. So, you know, it basically made it, as you say, it's about it. It's about really putting a kind of like leash on on the trade union movement and what they're allowed to do and when they're allowed to do it. Um, 
And that includes repealing bits of law that could have worked in our favour previously. I think this is the really big one that everybody remembers. Um, she kind of brought in the Trade Union Act of 1984. And this was a law that required all trade unions to hold a secret ballot before calling a strike. And uh, like I say, this is this is the really big one because kind of previously to this, there were... There were no laws that mandated that. So there was no requirements for a ballot of any sort. And you didn't have to give any notice to your employer about the timing of the strike um, or who was being called out. And that all changed in the Trade Union Act of 1984. And I think, you know, one of the really big bits of history that people remember in terms of testing this was during the minor strike when Scargill basically refused to call a ballot. And that caused like quite quite an upset. <laughs> that caused quite an upset amongst you know it within the NUM. A lot of the kind of grassroots rank and file resistance that you see to this was around the minor strike. The minor strike was testing a lot of this stuff because it wasn't, as I said, at the kind of top, like this is not an accident, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Factor always came into government knew in, knowing that she had to take on the NUM. And so she brought in this legislation in order to take on the NUM. After that, you did get the kind of Employment Acts of 1998, uh, uh, sorry, 1988, 1989 and 1990. But these were largely kind of just completing the process and solidifying the process that had already been laid out in the previous acts that we've talked about. Um, although they did also include things like um, selective dismissal of strikers um, who were taking on official strike action. They also um, did things like restrict time off with pay for, for uh, union duties and also meant that like union finances had to always be open to inspection. And obviously, as we've already spoken about later on, John Major brought in the postal ballots, which is, um, which is, you know, one, one of, one of the hardest, things I think to break when you're actually trying to 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 run a dispute is to to actually get people to vote in a postal ballot um so we're obviously now in like a very different world and when I was reading about this and I was thinking about this I just found it absolutely unbelievable that because I very much am Blair's baby um <laughs> I, I was born, <laughs> like, I, so I was born the year after Thatcher left uh office and obviously Blair came in, in in 1997 um and I just find the sort of world where you actually could just hold a meeting and stick your hand up in the canteen and walk out just completely unthinkable mm -hmm. um and that that kind of leads us into the place where we are now because these were so successful these these uh, anti-strike legislations as i say they have never been repealed now it's not just that new labor are completely wet and you know all of that stuff that that we all agree with but i think it it came with other stuff as well such as like falling union membership the changing kind of industry in in Britain and, and how we work. And there's a million reasons that we can kind of look to why we've got to the place we have as a trade union movement. And, you know, there'll be a million episodes for doing that. Um, but it is worth saying that these are probably, I would say, the most successful anti-strike laws um, that, that we've ever had. Um, and something that we... 
touched on previously, I think that has, you know, generally led us to the point where union officials are um, basically incredibly wet and they like to take it upon themselves to make the laws worse than even they really need to be and I don't know if I need to cover that point now because we did actually earlier in the show uh talk about how these these laws now have been so internalized by union bureaucracies um that they make them worse than they even need to be. Mm. I, th- I think that's something me and Ed talked about when we did the episode on the recent strike wave the way in which you know, one of the effects of the laws is, is is actually to further empower the union bureaucracy as an element within the union because it gives them the role of sort of policing the of sort of policing complicity with the laws because it's the bureaucracy that has to oversee the running of the ballot and ensuring the adequate notice is given and the you know conforming to the official trade dispute and blah blah blah. So it gives the bureaucracy a kind of an additional layer of power as almost the sort of internal police. And the worst expression of it, I think, is is uh, one that you see in, um, I think, uh, I think this is a, a, in Unison and NEU, I think I'm right in saying, there's a constitutional requirement that the, 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 the unions have adopted, you know, the state didn't tell them to do this, they've chosen to adopt it, a constitutional requirement to run a, indicative ballot prior to running a statutory ballot. So the union bureaucracy has basically imposed an additional layer of anti-strike restriction that the state doesn't require. Um, So that's, you know, a kind of perfect example of how the bureaucracy have kind of internalised these laws and, and, and as you say, Ellie, like actually made them worse than they even need to be. Yeah, that that so, whole attitude of of and and the experience of like the defeat in the kind of thirty years and stuff, I think, also kind of explains why. You know, I might I might be wrong. I was only like nine years old at the time, but I like when New Labour came in. I don't think there was a great clamouring from the trade union movement to get all these laws like off the books, and I think there was a kind of acceptance of like oh you know trade unionism's changed like people don't really have like big strikes and stuff anymore and like you know the, the I, I, don't, I don't think there was a great deal of sort well, of pressure from the unions on the party to kind of, so you went you went from a you went from a period where you know arguably when thatcher came in that she didn't one of the reasons she passed so many different laws is because she didn't think she'd be able to wrap it all up into one law without provoking mass resistance in a way that had happened in 71 to by the end of that period large parts of the trade union movement apparently having basically sort of given up on the idea of getting any of this stuff repealed despite the fact that they had a labor government with a majority of a a, a million or whatever it was that <laughs> Blair got in his first term you know when you were talking earlier, Ed, and you were like, oh, well, we might see again a Labour government come in and repeal even just the the most recent anti-union laws and not kind of deal with anything from the factory era or whatever. I was basically thinking, God, you're more, way more optimistic than me, right? <laughs> like, I, I cannot see Starmer's government doing that because there is 
there's very little counterweight to the to the anti-union laws that are that have even been brought in recently i think on on like quite a grand scale i don't know maybe i'm just like a bit of an eeyore about this but i feel like we we haven't had a kind of mass on sort of mass unrest about it really and i can't see starmer being feeling like he's being hit with enough sticks maybe maybe i am just being a bit of an eeyore about mm. it yeah i mean i think we'll probably come back to that in a second i mean you know for, for what it's worth and it might not be worth much um it is it is still the stated policy of the starmer leadership to repeal the most recent anti-strike law, which I'm going to be talking about in a minute, the Minimum Service Levels Act, um, and Labour's New Deal for Working People does also include commitment to repeal the 2016-17 Trade Union Act, which is the law that came in under Cameron, and that's the law that imposed turnout thresholds in um, in ballots and um, the double the double threshold in certain so-called essential services. Um, so we'll see. And as I say, that's something we'll, we'll probably pick up in a second. But just on Ed's point about the missed opportunity that was represented by, you know, however, however many years it was of Labour government. Um, I mean, certainly it's the case that, you know, there was a there was a shift in the orthodoxy of the trade union leadership after the smashing up of the struggles of the 80s. And there was a turn towards a, you know, sort of as a consequence of defeat, a turn towards a much more moderate um, sort of social partnership model of trade unionism, um, which obviously plays in perfectly to the kind of third way neoliberalized form of social democracy that um, uh, the New Labour project was, um, was based on. So there was certainly less pressure on the new Labour government than there might or should have been to repeal those laws, but there wasn't none. I mean, there was um, a bit of a campaigning ferment around it in the Labour movement. There was a campaign form called the United Campaign for the Repeal of the Anti-Trade Union Laws, the very, it was the very snappy acronym, UCRATL, which was formed as a sort of fusion of, um, as a kind of merger of two, prior previously existing campaigns one of which was kind of cp and stalinist dominated and the other one was a bit more trotty and workers liberty comrades were in it or involved in that at the time um but you know ukrattle was a reasonably prominent and vocal campaign that did organize large conferences certainly larger than um conferences of of, of any of the anti-union laws of any of the anti-anti-union laws campaigns that are on the scene now, you know, those of us here were, have been involved in a campaign called Free Our Unions. There's also the Campaign for Trade Union Freedom, which is the sort of inheritor of UCRATL that has the official patronage of um, uh, most of the trade union bureaucracy. I know some comrades who were at its AGM recently and there were 20 people there. So, you know, and that's not to have a dig particularly, but I think it's showing that you know, free our unions isn't organising mass meetings either, but but I think it's showing that there there is even less of a ferment around this now than there was um, in the period that we were just talking about. In 1996, Blair famously boasted 
prior to the 97 election in an, in, in an interview with, I forget which national newspaper, which was talking about the employment rights legislation that he was going to uh, introduce. And, you know, New Labour did liberal, you know, did, did kind of make some moderate reforms that sort of improved employment rights in a, in a, in a fairly piecemeal way. Blair said, look, even after these uh, laws that I'm going to implement, Britain will still have the most restrictive union laws of any country in the Western world, you know, subtext. So don't worry, you know, it's all, it's, we're not, we're not going to be going back to a situation of unions being able to strike at the drop of a hat. And Imagine they, that uh, being your flax. Imagine uh, that being your flax. They, 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 um, they repealed the, the ban on uh, trade unionism at GCHQ, didn't they? That is, do you know what that, that is true? That, that's the that's uh, there was one in the back of my head that I was trying to, and I was like, I'm sure because like people that love Tony Blair always mention it as if it was like, yes, the yes, like, it's, 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 that's know, right. It's not, it's not unions, true. unions for spooks. Yeah, it's not true that he didn't repeal any of those. He, he repealed the law that stopped spies from unionizing. Um, so you know, great. So we have a whole period of new Labour uh, government that fails to make a dent in any of these laws. Uh, spies accepted. Um, then uh, the Tories get back in and 2016-17, they um, impose the Trade Union Act, which we've talked about. And that's the law that um, uh, introduces the um, balloting threshold. It also, balloting thresholds, it also tightens the picketing code a little bit. So imposes further kind of semi-legislative legislative restrictions on, on, on picketing. The, the, the legal status of picketing is um, slightly blurry because pick, as well as being subject to sort of trade union legislation, picket lines are also subject to general sort of legislation around demonstration and assembly and gathering. And there's various codes of practice that have slightly ambiguous legal status. They're, they're sort of, they're, they're kind of enforceable if the police decide to enforce them. Police have a lot of discretion um, but 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 that stuff that stuff was kind of increased um, by the Trade Union Act as well. Um, wh wh one thing that's maybe worth noting about that, and you know, we've said that we would kind of return to the theme of like what was Labour movement res resistance to these laws like? The resistance to the imposition of the Trade Union Act, which I remember I was involved in that campaigning. I mean, was absolutely fucking abject. Uh, the Labour movement sleptwalked into it. There was one major national activity that was called, which was a lobby, a lobby of Parliament and a, and a rally in Westminster Central Hall. Um, no uh, meaningful campaign, really. And in its um, pretty uh, limp and timid um, campaigning material that it did produce uh in opposition to the law, one of the arguments that the TUC made was that there was no need for the legislation to be imposed because strikes were at historically low levels. Which is, I mean, you know, fuck me, because you could you couldn't script it, could you? Like, um, like but, uh, don't so, wor don't worry, we're we're not we're not a threat to the yeah, we're not yeah. a threat to anyone. <laughs> You know. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed, yeah. So, um, pre pre pretty abject. Um, then two years after that act comes into effect, in their 2019 manifesto, the Tories make a commitment to introduce a minimum service level during transport strikes. And 
uh, that commitment ha ha has quite a kind of had quite a classic political form in the context of history that we're looking at because a lot of these laws were first proposed and then implemented sort of in response to particular strikes and one of the industrial campaigns that sort of bucked the trend of, a, of this very low level of um, industrial action that we saw at the end of the 2010s were some strikes by the RMT on the national rail in defence of the role of the guard, so against so-called driver-only operation. And in response to that campaign of strikes, the Tories put this commitment in their 2019 manifesto and said that they would legislate to impose a minimum service level, which would basically mean that even if rail workers went on strike, there would have to be some kind of legally mandated minimum service. Um, the law to enact that was eventually introduced to Parliament in October 2022. Obviously, the pan you know the Tories got elected 2019. Uh, the pandemic kind of intervened, obviously knocked a lot of their political priorities um, back a bit. But October 2022, this legislation is brought before Parliament. But within a few months, and again in response to a you know big uptick in industrial action the scope of that legislation had been expanded and the transport strikes minimum service levels bill was superseded by the strikes minimum service levels bill and the scope was expanded to include five additional sectors. Um, so as uh, 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 tr transport and five others for, for, for a total of six. And as I say, that was very directly in response to the strike wave that began in mid-22, which we discussed in a previous episode and kind of ongoing in an important sense and is and is definitely of generational significance so um that that bill the strikes minimum service levels bill became an act in july so it is now law um uh although there are some complexities around its kind of precise implementation which um, i'll come back to so just to say a little bit about what that law entails it gives the government via the relevant secretary of state um, the power to set a minimum service level in the uh, six covered industries, which are transport, health services, fire and rescue services, education services, nuclear decommissioning and border security. Um, once a minimum service level has been set, then in the event of a strike in one of those six sectors, um, employers in that sector may, and the legislation does say may, not, not must, and I think that's significant for reasons I'll come back to. Um, employers may issue what's called a work notice, which can name individual workers who are required to provide the minimum service. And uh, the union organising the strike um, must then, and once work notice is issued, it then does become a matter of must. Um, the union must take reasonable steps to ensure, and that, that, that's the language of the legislation, it must take reasonable steps to ensure that its members comply with the work notice and attend work, i.e. that they scab on their own strike. Um, the government just conducted a consultation which concluded on the 6th of October, which is last week as we record, um, to establish a, a, a kind of code of practice, which presumably will be legally enforceable to some degree, which kind of set out exactly what constitutes so-called reasonable steps. Um, the conclusions of that consultation are yet to be published. We don't know exactly what's going to be in the code of practice. Um, according to the Act, if a union fails to take those reasonable steps, whatever it, whatever they end up being, um, it will make itself liable for damages incurred 
during the strike. So we're kind of back in tough fail territory where unions could be held liable for damages um, uh, incurred during their own strikes. And if I, you, I think as it's kind of it's kind of well, it's it's in in one way it's kind of worse. But if if, if it's a question of like it names individuals, like I th- I think that would be I think like. Stanley Baldwin's like Tory government in the twenties would consider that to be like an infringement on people's liberty. Do you know what I mean? Like it oh, seems yeah, very like that is very draconian. You know, for, for sure. I mean, so yes, work, work notices. Well, it's not exactly clear, like ex- exactly how work notices will be drawn up, but there is there is explicit scope in the legislation for them to consist of lists of named individual workers. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that this is an important point to make that, um, you know, we've talked about seeing this not just as an economic issue, but as a matter of like political and civil and democratic liberty. And I think one has to see this legislation in the context of the Tory government's kind of authoritarian drift, which is not a term I use lightly. But I think, you know, you set it in the context of it's, you know, nationalistic crackdowns on migrants in the context of it's. Um, bolstering of police powers in the context of its um, uh, legislating against other forms of protest. You know, what what we're dealing with is an authoritarian, you know, government that has a a kind of authoritarian edge, for sure. Um, So, yeah, unions will be liable for damages and individual workers named. If you participate in a strike after having been named in a work notice, you lose your legal protection from dismissal. So we've talked about the idea of negative rights. You know, we don't have a positive right to strike, but there's a kind of negative right in that currently, if you participate in a strike that is otherwise conducted lawfully, despite the fact that technically it's a breach of contract and therefore sort of illegal, if you participate in that strike that's conducted lawfully, currently you're legally protected from dismissal. So even though you don't have the positive right to strike, you have the protection from dismissal, under the new act, you lose that protection from dismissal if you participate in a strike after being named in a work notice because because basically y- y- your strike action would then be considered unlawful. As I say, there are, there are all sorts of complications with this, even on the act's own terms, and ha- how you even set a minimum service level in these sectors is, is not by any means straightforward. And there are sector-specific consultations ongoing in a number of the sectors covered to, to try and establish this um, and, and it may take some time but I would strongly reiterate a point that Ed made earlier which is that we should not allow the complicated and sort of seemingly even a bit inoperable nature of the law as written to lull us into a sense of complacency you know the Tories will find a way of making it do what they needed to do Right, which is to, to undermine and restrict strikes. Now, look, there's a time frame question here, and obviously, depending on how long these consultations take, depending on when the next election's called, it is possible that the Tories will be out of office <laughs> before they've really had a chance to um, put this law into action. But we can't rely on that, right? M- maybe they won't be. Um, so uh, that does rather pose the question what to do about it. The recent TUC Congress passed a resolution calling for, and I quote, a mass campaign of non-compliance with the law. Now, that's obviously good, but we need a real discussion in the movement, as as I think we've kind of alluded to already in the episode, about what that means in practice. You know, mass defiance of the law is not a small thing. It requires preparation. It requires organisation to give people the confidence to do it. And it has to be done 
in a mass collective way. Um, I want to come back in a second to the question of what defiance might look like in practice. But I think it's also important to, to kind of reiterate some of the points we were making earlier about, about, about 71, which is that, you know, as well as orienting to the, and, and attempting to prepare for sort of direct action defiance of the law, there are other things that the movement can and should be doing at the level of kind of grassroots campaigning. And again, as we've noted, the level of organised opposition has so far been less than we need it to be. Let me put it that way. Several unions have had policy to call a national demonstration against the laws since way before the Act was passed, right? But a demonstration hasn't taken place. The RMT called some midweek demonstrations outside Parliament on nights when the bill was at various stages of its reading. It's good that, 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 that those demonstrations happened. Some of them were quite big. And it's good that the RMT took a lead in doing that, but that's not a substitute for a proper national mass campaign that involves big national demonstrations, rallies in other cities, stuff like that. You know, I find it utterly baffling that the TUC has yeah, not... It's, it's, it's crazy, right? right? Because, you know, like, it just utterly baffles me that the TUC is not... You, surely you can get a rally together. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, indeed, like... It, that's something that the TUC could basically look, you know, the, the TUC is a trade union bureaucracy without a rank and file. Yeah, It's a bureaucracy without a mass membership. And if nothing else, the bureaucracy, a, a, a sort of floating bureaucracy should have the person power to like organize a demonstration. Now, clearly a demonstration wouldn't have stopped the laws on its own. And organizing a national demonstration now, which that TUC resolution also called for, isn't going to get them repealed. But as as Ellie put it very um, well earlier, if we can't even organise the kind of bare minimum forms of symbolic protest, that doesn't augur particularly well for the movement's ability to pull off forms of resistance that require, that require much deeper organising. So I, I think, think as well that there's there's such an opportunity for the trade union movement to to like have a strong political intervention into like the next general election campaign off the back of the strike wave in a way that there hasn't been for a long time, including on the issue of the anti-union laws. And, like, it, it shouldn't be difficult in this context to to be mobilising demonstrations and to try and, like, leverage public opinion on stuff like this as well, you know? Like, it, it, it's, it's a more... I think it's more favourable political terrain for, like the trade union movement to inter intervene in politics than it has been for a long time. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I think that's symptomatic of something wider, which is that um, there has been a, if not conscious, then certainly kind of de facto abandonment of the political terrain by unions. I mean, I, I think we may have touched on this in our episode about the strike wave, but you know, you look you, you look at what's going on in the strike wave in terms of like mass strikes in the health sector. You know, you were you were kind of approaching conditions that you could call like a general. You could have almost called them like a general strike in the NHS, right? When you had like lots of different unions representing lots of different grades of workers in the NHS striking at the same time. Perfect opportunity for health unions and the wider labour movement and the Labour Party, if it had a political brain cell, to intervene in that moment and say okay we're gonna we're, we're gonna fuse the industrial demands of these workers with a 
political platform about renationalizing the NHS, you know, proper funding. We're going to have campaigns, demonstrations, rallies in every town and city, blah, blah, blah. Perfect moment to do that. Um, keep our NHS public, bless them, which is a, you know, does good and important work, is, is, is one of the main uh, campaign networks organizing in this space. Did call a national demonstration uh, in, I think, March. Um, had the formal sponsorship of a number of trade unions, but those unions didn't mobilise. Just simply mm. didn't mobilise, and that and that, and and that demonstration was, you know, good that it took place, but it was pretty small. So, so again, there, that's a, that's illustrative of the same trend I think you're talking about, Ed. That that unions are are not really taking an opportunity um, to intervene politically in a pointed way. Um, you know, I mean, Unite's got this uh, Unite for a Workers Economy campaign that it's just launched and i guess you know objectively the kind of form of that is sort of approaching something that um might be a bit of a bit of a step forward and a bit of a, a bit of an advance but that's as far as i can see like not hugely ambitious in the demands that it's making it's not particularly focused it's kind of making its demands up in the air and Sharon Graham says explicitly, look, you know, this isn't about Labour or Tories. This isn't, this, this isn't about putting demands on an incoming Labour government. It's just about like raising the issues that matter to our members. And, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty depoliticized and anti-political way to run a political campaign. Um, so yeah, I think that, that look, that's a bit of a tangent off our main topic, but I think it underlines a, a point, which has been a factor all the way through here that, um, you know, you, you, you can't decouple the economic and industrial from the political and we need our unions to be intervening on um, on, on on both of those terrains, which, which segues quite nicely, actually, into the, the next point I was going to make about what the movement could be doing about this act, which is that there's an additional political angle, additional to the sort of, you know, demand, demanding Labour, an incoming Labour government keeps its promise to, to repeal this act. There's an additional political angle, which is around placing demands on employers not to issue work notices. So remember, remember I said that the law gives the government the power to set the minimum service level, but it's up to employers to enforce them via work notices. And the law only says that they may issue work notices, not that they must. So um, Hamza Yusuf, who's the SNP first minister, minister of Scotland, so not a left-wing radical by any stretch of the imagination, he said in a speech to the Scottish TUC, that the Scottish government under his leadership will never issue or enforce a work notice. Now, minimally, absolute minimum demand in this scenario is that every Labour authority, and I'd, I'd expand that to every authority run by an anti-Tory party, a party that opposes the government. So, you know, I think there's a Green Council in Suffolk now, obviously there's SNP councils in Scotland. Um, every every Labour and anti-Tory authority especially in places like London, where we've got a Labour authority that oversees public transport provision, which is one of the six industries directly covered by the Act, should be making that same commitment that they're not going to issue work notices. So that's that's another kind of political campaigning angle that um, our unions could and should be organising. However, I do think it is, it, it, it's vital to keep open and aim for the horizon of direct defiance. And I think a law like this probably isn't going to be broken without being broken, no, no, no pun intended. And I think the logical point at which unions can directly defy the law is by refusing to take those so-called reasonable steps to ensure 
members comply with work notices. That, that's where, you know, the TEC resolution talks about non-compliance. And if we want to be clear and practical about what that means, that's where the potential for non-compliance arises. Um, to basically just say, no, we're going to strike anyway. We're going to call all our members out on strike, even the ones named in a work notice. Um, and that's that's a high risk strategy. It places the union itself at considerable, considerable financial risk. It places workers involved at risk of dismissal. Although I'd say, obviously, you know, the risk of dismissal is perhaps mitigated the more, you know, you, you scale it up and the risk of dismissal is, is mitigated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy for an employer to pick off individuals much harder for an employer to sack an entire workforce for, for going on strike. But, you know, it is really high risk. It's not something that should be kind of talked about or, or, or undertaken lightly. And certainly, you know, we shouldn't be sort of posturing, um, sort of po posturing like play acting radicals about this. Um, but, you know, look, the TUC Congress, which is the closest thing we have to a sort of cross-union parliament of the movement has passed the resolution calling for non-compliance and i can't see what other form non-compliance can meaningfully take um, other than that so um get, getting to a point where the movement has the collective confidence to undertake that kind of defiance requires an effort of discussion education preparation and i guess you know we're, we're we're trying to contribute to that in a small way via discussing this topic on our, on our podcast and all three of us are also involved in a grassroots campaign, which has been mentioned already, Free Our Unions, which also very much aims to contribute to that effort via the production of briefings, model motions, online meetings and, and other resources for rank and file trade unionists who, who want to activate their unions on this issue. And, and, and we'll put a link to the, to, to the campaign in, in the description of the episode. The, the place I, I wanted to kind of conclude on, which is something that we've spoken to fairly extensively already but i think it's worth me finishing on because because it's important and and, and bears and bears repetition um you know with every new restriction that we we face that there, there is a risk of the envelope being pushed even further and and our horizons contracting to focus only on the newest law and to start subconsciously accepting the previous ones as kind of fixed and immutable so i mentioned that the labor leadership is currently committed to repealing the 2023 and 2016-17 acts, although it's it's kind of wavering about the 2016-17 one, um, but says little to nothing about the older restrictions. So I think part of what rank and file radicals in the movement who want to expand the horizon on this question have to do is continually assert a much more bold and ambitious and expansive approach and argue for the abolition of all legal restrictions. And this this speaks to the point that Ellie was making. You know, for for anyone of so yeah, we're all in our kind of mid to late thirties. I think that's fair to say. Early, early. I think I, I think you're from mid, my early. mid, definitely <laughs> mid. Okay, all right. Well, look, I'm thirty-two. Allow me. I'm, to I'm talking about myself. All right, we're all <laughs> as usual. Listen, listen, we're all in our. I'm thirty-six. Right, that's mid. Yeah, that's mid. Yeah, mid, yeah. mid, early to mid thirties. So anyone <laughs> who is. Um, even a bit older than us, really. Anyone who's anyone kind of from their early forties downwards, who's a worker, has spent their entire working life in a scenario where these laws have been the reality, and will find it like fantastical and unimaginable that there was once a period where you could go on strike 
in solidarity with other workers. You could go on strike for political demands. You could go, you could uh, launch a strike by having a vote in a workplace meeting and just walk off the job. This is, you know, in inconceivable to people. So there's a really important effort of like consciousness raising that I think we need to do to say, look, we don't have to accept these laws as, a, as fixed and immutable. They didn't always exist and they don't have to always exist. And we should assert our rights to strike um, at a time of our choosing over issues of our choosing sanctioned by a democratic process that's under the union's control, um, and, which can which might include, you know, that might that might include electronic balloting, which is something the Labour Party has said it will legislate for um, to allow unions to conduct ballots electronically. So, OK, it might include electronic balloting. It might include voting in workplace ballots or it might include voting in workplace meetings. You know, it should be up to us to decide the democratic process that um, uh, strikes are, are, are kind of launched off the back of. And, and, and I think also it's, you know, worth saying this is this, this, this will feel like a bit of a kind of crowbarring this in, but I think it is worth mentioning that, you know, we, we, we live in a, in a period where um, we might only have a few more decades of inhabitable life on the planet. And to avert climate crisis, workers are going to need to leverage our power over production. And at the minute, we can't do that in a legal, official way because we're not allowed to strike for political demands. So if workers wanted to go on strike to demand that the government changes its energy policy, we can't do that because it's against the law. So um, getting rid of these restrictions, I think, is also, you know, also has a really important bearing on what is arguably the most significant kind of political social question of our time, which is which is the climate question. I think that shows us that although what we've been talking about is an employment rights issue, it's it's also, as we have continually emphasized, it's a political issue. It's 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 a question of um social freedom. It's a question of basic democratic and civil liberties. If you don't have a full right to strike, then however democratic your society is in other ways, then you've got a kind of dictatorship of the boss prevailing in the workplace. And when you have a dictatorship of the boss, you get catastrophic climate change, bluntly. So, um, I mean, it's worth saying that, like, th there have there have been th there have been elements of defiance. They've been few and far between. There have been elements of defiance. There was a, sure. a Heathrow Airport. There was uh, the baggage handlers' uh, sympathy strike, wasn't there? Like back in two thousand five, like. Yeah, it's, baggage handlers went on strike in solidarity with um, catering, outsourced catering workers. Who yeah, were... yeah, and again, like I imagine, probably a very, probably a very organised workforce with a quite a strong kind of shop floor tradition, and you know the the same old thing goes of like you know the more people do it, the safer you are, sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, and there's and there's a there's a wildcat tradition in the in the postal service, which we've referenced in yeah yeah previous episodes. I you think also, so. Yeah. You also get people bending the um, bending the definition of like health and safety at work to the the, the most extreme possible uh, way, like you know the most extreme possible um, place in order to do some sort of a political strike without it being a political strike. So I think you kind of get stuff like that sometimes. Yeah, and I mean, again, I think this is something we might have commented on in our episode on the strike wave, but there was certainly a potential there for testing the limits of some of the laws, even if only in a symbolic way. And certainly if we are going to have 
you know, meaningful social reform. We're going to need, we, we, you know, we're going to need to see workers going on strike to demand the renationalisation of the NHS and workers mm-hmm. going on strike to demand uh, the renationalisation of uh, public transport and, you know, workers going on strike to articulate political demands. Um, and that, you know, that, that can be done in a sort of... Um, that can be sort of gestured towards, but at some point it does need it, it will need to be sort of organized directly. So I think again that that comes back to the necessity of having a meaningful labor movement campaign against the laws that educates about them, that, that raises consciousness around them, that can prepare the ground for them to be defied and broken. All right, well, I think we've 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 kind of reached a uh, semi-natural conclusion. So um thanks. Uh, as usual, to everyone for listening. Um, I'd like to point out at this point as well to listeners that uh, during the planning stage of this episode, Daniel took it upon himself to give me 170 years of history to do, (laughs) Ellie 45 years, and himself like about About the last five minutes. And and yet and yet I've, so, somehow I've still managed to talk more than probably the two, <laughs> the two of you put together. I don't know what that says about my personality. Well, look, uh, as as per usual, we we hope that um, listeners to this podcast have found it um, useful, um, informative, if nothing else, um, at least thought provoking. And we hope there are some some kind of uh, you know ideas and. Um, approaches that you might be able to apply in your um, day-to-day trade union activity. Hi everyone, Daniel here with a short note just before we wrap up this episode. Um, We recorded it a few days into the latest war in Israel-Palestine, just as Israel was beginning its siege on Gaza. We couldn't find a way of addressing this in the episode itself, which didn't feel tokenistic and frankly trivialising. Addressing it in a short postscript is pretty tokenistic too, but as a podcast with an internationalist and political outlook, it felt wrong not to mention it at all. For whatever it's worth, and in the face of such immense brutality, it often feels like it's not worth much, we add our voices to calls for Israel to end its siege, which represents a crime against humanity. As Democrats, internationalists and socialists, we oppose Israel's occupation and support the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. On the basis of those same politics, we also oppose Hamas and its murder of Israeli civilians. Only a political framework that guarantees equal rights to both peoples, Israeli Jews and Palestinians, including an equal right to self-determination, can ensure peace and security. Looking at the history of Israel-Palestine from a class perspective is something we think we'd like to come back to in a future episode if possible. Palestinian labour organisations have faced the twin struggles that class-based organisations in an occupied or colonised society have always faced, of having to confront occupation whilst also confronting ruling class and reactionary forces within their own society. Meanwhile, Israeli workers' organisations have had many important confrontations with the Israeli ruling class, and some have sometimes been important voices for coexistence and class solidarity. But some were also a key agent of the colonial exclusion of Arab labour in Israel's early national formation. 
We're putting links in the episode description to three workers' organisations active on the ground. The Democracy and Workers' Rights Centre in Palestine, which organises in both the West Bank and Gaza. And two organisations based in Israel, which organise both Israeli Jewish and Palestinian Arab workers. We don't agree with everything they all say and do, but they are class-based organisations whose members are involved in important struggles. So we encourage you to follow their work. In the hope of better days through struggle for all workers of all nationalities and backgrounds. Thanks for listening. Labour Days was presented by Ellie Clark, Ed Mustill and Daniel Randall. It was edited by Ed Mustill. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Labour underscore Days and find us on Facebook.